I was telling someone about how we were starting this series, and they said to me, oh, it's kind of annoying, um, you know, sometimes you've just got to preach through these pragmatic issues. And I kind of nodded agreement, but what I should have done is said, no, actually, this is not a pragmatic issue. That's, that's damning this issue with faint praise to say, well, this is just something you have to do to pay the bills. This is actually... Far from pragmatic, this is a deeply spiritual, deeply theological issue that we're looking at over the next couple of weeks. And it's something that's deeply rooted in the scriptures. So you need to be on the lookout whenever you see a preacher preaching without a Bible, that's when he's getting pragmatic. That's when he's just speaking to an issue at hand. But if he has the Bible open, if he's preaching from the scriptures, then then it might be worth you listening to. So for the next three weeks, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. Three weeks in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. Next week, God willing, you'll have a little series outline for these three weeks with some extra notes and resources for you. Um, And just so you can get a look ahead, we've got on a slide here... um, uh, If you skip through the Bible reading, I'll get back to that in a sec... I've got a slide, just an outline of the, our three-week series um, coming up in just a second now. All right, here we go. So, the Gospel and Giving. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians 8 mainly, 1 to 15. I'll read that in a minute. Um, and, uh, and this is where we're going. So, week one, we're going to be talking about grace and guilt. Week two, looking at greed and gladness. And week three, the Gospel and the goal, along with some guidelines for giving. Um, as I said, you'll get all of this in a booklet just so that you can keep track of it. And just to give you a little bit of the context for this passage that we're going to be looking at for three weeks, and this is the passage we want you to be looking at as a small group and asking questions of, discussing, debating, and so on. Um, this passage in 2 Corinthians 8, the, the context is, is Paul is in Macedonia as he writes this letter. And uh, the Christians in Macedonia are, are crippled by poverty. Uh, there'd be all kinds of reasons for this. To be a Christian in the first century was a dangerous thing. It was also a very costly thing. You could lose businesses, homes, even families on account of being a disciple of Jesus. And so you've got a group of Christians in Macedonia who are very poor, and Paul is ministering to them there, and he has sent Titus, one of his protégés, um, Titus over to, Corinth, uh, over to Corinth, and he sent Titus with a severe letter. We don't have this letter, it's one of Paul's letters that we don't have, but it was a severe letter, it was a letter of rebuke and reproof, Titus was the lucky guy who got to go and deliver it, but then Titus has come back to Macedonia and he has a great report for Paul, he says, the the church there, they didn't throw me out, they didn't tear up your letter, they actually received it with grace, they acknowledged their sin and repented of it, and so a bit of good news for Paul as he writes this letter. And so you see throughout 2 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, Paul is quite encouraging of them. He wants to encourage them in this kind of new state of repentance um, that they're experiencing after having been rebuked by him. But there's one thing that's missing, he says. And as he ministers in the midst of this poverty-stricken place and he thinks of Corinth, this great city of the world, affluent, wealthy, right? He knows that the people of Corinth have stopped giving. 
And specifically, they've stopped giving to a project that Paul put together a couple of years ago. He put together this project, this giving project, this stewardship campaign, this fundraising effort for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. There, the the Jews who have become Christians, uh, like the Macedonians, dealing with a lot of poverty. And so Paul has gone around his church and said, let's give to these guys. You guys have got heaps of money. How about we give some to these guys? And the Corinthians started that giving and then they stopped that giving. And so Paul's writing to them in chapter 8 and 9, encouraging them to take up that, that um, effort once again. So that's the context of what we're going to be looking at over the next three weeks. How about I pray for us and we'll dive right into chapter 8, verse 1 to 15. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. And we pray that it would speak to us. Lord, this is not merely a pragmatic issue. This is one of deep spiritual significance. And it matters to everyone here in the room this morning. So, Lord, please speak into our hearts. May we be like those Corinthians who, when, when, we, when they received a word of rebuke, did not harden their hearts, but rather turned to the Lord in repentance and faith. May it be so of us here this morning, for we prayed in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me just read the passage for us. If you've got a Bible, you should, there should be one near you. Um, and we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 to 15. If you don't own a Bible, take that one with you. That's our gift to you. And, um, and so just as you turn there, you can either read in the book or on the screen. Everything will be up there as well. So Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 8, starting at verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of, the, of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had done earlier made a beginning, to bring also to pre- pre- completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love which we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, So that through his poverty, you might become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there... The gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. 
Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In his uh, gospel, the historian Luke tells this story about Jesus. And it's the part of Luke's gospel where Jesus is, for the last time, Luke says, turning his face towards Jerusalem. And he's walking to Jerusalem to die on a cross. He knows that this is the last time he will enter that city. He knows that in that city he will be crucified, something we're going to celebrate in the middle of April at Easter. And as he turns to Jerusalem, he goes through Jericho, and and Luke says that when he gets to Jericho, he is surrounded by crowds, and there is this man named Zacchaeus. He's a little man, and he's a reviled man. He's a hated man. He's a man who has joined with the Romans in their oppression of the people of Israel. He is a Jew who has turned against the Jews. He is collecting taxes on behalf of the Roman overlords, and as tax collectors are wont to do, he has jacked up the prices on everything. He's extorting the people under the protection of the all-conquering Romans, and so he's hated, absolutely hated, and he's also very, very rich. You know, (laughs) it's no secret that there is an abundance of people who are willing to be hated so long as they're well compensated for it, right? Don't think about your boss. So Zacchaeus is a rich man, he's a hated man, he is a sinful man. But when Jesus comes through town, there's something inside of him that just wants to be close to him, that just wants to hear from him. Maybe he's heard that Jesus is known as a, as, as a, as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so he tries to get close to him. He's too short. He can't see him. He climbs a tree. Jesus walks past the tree, looks straight at him and says, Zacchaeus, invite me around to dinner. I'm, I'm coming over. And so according to the Hebrew custom of the day, Jesus would have gone to his house and stayed the night there. And at some point along the way, Luke takes up the narrative. So in Luke Chapter 19, verse 7 to 10, he says this, All the people saw this, that's Jesus going to Zacchaeus' house, and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. And then scholars the world over say this is the key verse of the book of Luke. 19 verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And what the point that Luke wants to make is a profound one, profoundly theological point. He wants us to know that Jesus saves and that saved people are changed. 
and that changed people not only changed their behavior, but they changed their attitude towards everything, even money. Even the man who is willing to be hated and reviled by everyone he's ever met is willing to change his view of money and possessions and material things because he's been saved by Jesus, the one who came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus says, this man is changed forever. This man has been saved. The evidence of this is his willingness to give up his idol. I mean, it's pretty big, right? I'm giving, I'm giving 50% away. And if anyone, if I've done anyone any wrong, which is pretty much everyone, four times back. That's the evidence of a changed heart. The scholar R. Kent Hughes, he, he wrote this. Authentic salvation changes our orientation to wealth. I'm going to say that again. This is the point, right? Authentic salvation changes our orientation to wealth. By the way, this is why we're talking about the gospel and giving, not just like five ways to give better so that we have more money to employ more people, right? This is not a pragmatic issue. This is a profoundly spiritual issue. Authentic salvation changes our orientation to wealth. If our professed salvation has not loosed our grip on material things so that we have become giving people, we are not saved. Despite our protestations. So all of those protestations that come pouring out of your heart and your mind when you hear someone say something as brutal as that, he says, doesn't matter. Objection overruled. Authentic salvation changes our orientation to wealth. And the great, the great uh, Anglican pastor, John Wesley, said the last part of a man to be converted is his wallet. So this is why this is so important. This is why Jesus talks about money more than just about anything else. This is why it's so deeply, profoundly, theologically significant for us to look at this issue over the next couple of weeks. And this is how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 8. All right, verse 1 and 2. Take a look at your Bibles. He says, Now, brothers and sisters... We want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches in the midst of a very severe trial. Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. So the Christians in Jerusalem are poor, starving, have nothing. The Christians in Macedonia are poor, starving, have nothing. He says, in their extreme poverty. Just think about the images that come to mind when you think of extreme poverty. And Paul says to the wealthy Corinthians, or at least to the Corinthians who aren't suffering in the same way as those in Jerusalem and those in Macedonia, he says, we want you to be aware of this. We want this to be an example for you. We want you to know about the grace of God at work in the Macedonians. 
That's very important, that word grace. In this section that we're going to look at in the coming weeks, Paul uses the word grace repeatedly more than any other word. Grace, grace, grace. That's why this is gospel and giving. It's all about grace. And so he says, we want you to know about the grace that has been given to the Macedonian churches. What is the grace? How does it manifest itself? It manifests itself in giving, even in the midst of extreme poverty. And he says in verse 3, and this just blows my mind, he says, I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. How easy would it be for these poverty-stricken Christians to see the poverty-stricken Christians in Jerusalem and just point the finger at the Corinthians? We got nothing. What are those guys doing? We've got some ideas for your severe letter, Paul, right? And while you're at it, how about giving us some money? But no, 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 the, the gospel has so changed them. The grace of God that has been given to them has so changed their hearts that like Zacchaeus, they're just dying to give. And it's not even, we're going to talk about proportional giving, right? He says later on, don't give more than you are able to give. But here he says, the grace of God has so affected them that that's exactly what they were doing. He says, I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. I don't even know what that looks like. Like selling the shirt off your back, I guess. How has this happened? This is so weird, right? This is so strange. This does not happen. But it has happened and it's because of the grace of God. Why is anyone of us able to give generously? Because of the grace of God. There are no naturally generous people. They are mythological creatures, right? They don't exist. There are no generous people. If we are generous, it's because our hearts, which by their nature are greedy and gluttonous and self-interested, it's because the Spirit of God and the grace of God has changed us in order to be generous. Brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. And then he doesn't just point to the example of the Macedonians, right? They might just be some kind of throwback. He says, it's not just this group of people that I want to point to as your example. Your ultimate example is Jesus Christ himself. If you're a disciple of him, that means you're a follower of him. That means you'll follow his example. And he points to his example, the example of the Lord Jesus in verse 9. He says, for you know, you know, I'm not teaching you anything you don't know. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. What does that mean? It means that Jesus, looked at Philippians chapter 2 for this, Jesus, the example of Jesus, is the king of heaven condescending to earth, becoming a man, giving up his privileges, 
giving up his self-determination in order to die for us, be a slave for us, empty himself on our behalf. He says, Jesus went from the greatest riches that you could imagine to nothing, to naked, bleeding, dying on a cross, so that in your spiritual poverty you might become rich. Now, there have been some preachers who are not saved, who do not know the gospel, who have preached some kind of message, somehow taking this verse out of context and saying, see, Jesus became poor so you could become rich, so you should be rich. And while you're at it, give us some of that, right? And, and it's satanic. That's just, just the most obvious thing in the world that that's not what Paul's talking about. He's saying Jesus went from having everything to having nothing in a tomb so that you could go from having nothing No inheritance from God, only condemnation, so that you could go from that to having everything that he has. We are co-heirs with Christ because he first became poor on our behalf. So he's like, yeah, look at those Macedonians, they're crazy. See their example, but our ultimate example is Jesus himself. We are able to give because God first gave to us. This is how Graham Bainan says it. says it beautifully. All that we do flows out of what God has done for us. Mark that. We see his love towards us, so we love others. We experience his forgiveness, and so we forgive others. We see his patience with us and are patient with others. So likewise, we see his generosity in giving to us, and we are generous in giving to others. The worst thing we could do in the world in this series is motivate you to give because we have big power bills, right? You've got to pay the bills, Now, all of that is true. The only way we turn on the lights is because you guys drop some money in the plate or give electronically. But that's not the point. That's not the point. The reason we give generously of our time, our talent, our treasure, the reason we give generously is because we see how God has given to us. We can never outgive Him. He's given us His Son. So it's the grace of God to the Macedonians that enables them to give until they have absolutely nothing left. And it's the grace of God to us that elicits the kind of heart-motivated giving that marks out true disciples of Jesus. Now, I was expecting a few more amens during that little bit of the sermon, but you might in your heart be saying amen and you might be agreeing with everything I'm saying and I think everything I've said is absolutely bang on the money if I do say so myself. I think it's absolutely true and it's the key motivation for our generosity. The grace of God to us. You might just give theoretical assent to everything I've said and still fail to give generously to this church and to those in need Because you are plagued by the thorn in the flesh that plagues so many Christians. It's a two-pronged thorn. It's called greed and guilt. 
and we're going to get to greed next week. So make sure you're back for that, all right? I have five people here next week now. I shouldn't have done that. We're going to get to greed next week. But I do want to talk about guilt. Because it's possible for us, because of our guilt, to be prevented in exercising the kind of generosity that Paul is calling us to, that the Lord Jesus is demonstrating for us. So let me just read verse 10 to 11. Of chapter 8, he says, Here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work, so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. So I've got three reasons that this kind of thing might elicit guilt in the Corinthians and it might elicit guilt in us this morning and that, that guilt might prevent us from doing what we know God wants us to do. So, three reasons, all right? Number one, the guilt of starting and not finishing might prevent them and us from giving generously. So, you know, he says there that you, last year you were the first, not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work. They had started giving and it had just kind of petered out, right? You know, this can happen. You can start with great motivation to do something, whether it's a New Year's resolution or something a little bit more substantial, like reading your Bible every day, right? You can start off with this great motivation and it's not just kind of it's not just your, your hand, your arm being twisted, but it's, it's sincere desire. And yet, after a little while, that kind of peters out. And then what happens is, we can feel so much guilt about allowing our desire to peter out that we never go back to it. Guilt is a great preventer of making amends. This is true for the Corinthians. It could also be very true for us. So here's... here's Here's something I was kind of giggling over, and it was the kind of giggle that also happens when you start crying and, um, and wanting to quit, all right? So I looked back at the um, congregational giving for last year. Uh, I was trying to get some figures together for this booklet that we're going to give you, just to give you a bit more information, and I noticed that um, I preached three weeks last February 2016 on this topic, and the graph <laughs> for giving... Um, in February and March, doubled. The giving doubled in February and March. Like a 100% increase for February and March, and then April it was back down to just under normal. So that's called starting a work of generosity and then failing to complete it. Now, I've got, like, reams and lists of things like that that we could definitely use just to leverage a bit more money out of you. But our purpose in speaking about this is not to induce guilt. It's not even to induce some kind of behavioural change, right? That graph, that's behavioural change. That's, he's talked about money, maybe we should give more. That's not heart change, And that, as much as it meant we could maybe buy some paper for the printer or whatever, that is useless to us. That is not what we're on about. 
That is not what God is interested in. God wants nothing less than your soul. And so do we. So Paul points this out to them. He points out the fact that they gave and stopped giving, not to, not to induce some kind of guilt or shame, not to, to beat them down, but rather to encourage them. He says, remember, cast your mind back. Remember, remember the desire that you had. Remember the joy that you had. We're going to talk in a couple of weeks about cheerful giving, how God loves a cheerful giver. He wants to invite them into that joy that the Macedonians had. They begged us for the privilege, right? He wants to invite us into the joy, and so he wants them to cast their minds back to the joy that it was to contribute more and more and more to the work of the kingdom of God. We'll get to this, but I feel like I should say just now, when I talk about giving, I'm not just talking about what you give to us. This is not a, an in-house thing. This is talking about, I'm talking about generosity. I'm talking about a general disposition of generosity towards others. Time, talent, treasure. Don't confine your financial giving to our church. Don't give us everything you have to give to others. There are plenty of worthy things that are worthy of your money. In this example that Paul's giving here, he's not talking about regular giving, weekly giving to the church. He's talking about a special collection for those who are desperately in need. So I don't want to narrow this down just to us. But pray, ask God to to cast your mind back to that time when you generously and cheerfully gave of what you had, which he already gave to you in the first place for the sake of others, and remember the joy that it was to be involved in that work. So that's one thing that could happen, one type of guilt that could come upon us that prevents us from doing what God is calling us to. Another one is that um, we could experience the, the guilt that comes from being outdone by others, right? Imagine the Corinthians. They're being outdone by some of the poorest people in the world. Corinth is, a, is renowned for its wealth. And he's talking about these poor, poverty-stricken Macedonians. Extreme poverty. And so the Corinthians could hear this and, and they could just feel the, the guilt that kind of comes with being outdone by those who have nothing and it could cause them to stop giving altogether. They don't want to experience that. They're ashamed of it. I remember experiencing this when Renee and I, before we had kids, we, went, we traveled around southern Africa for five weeks and I just remember continuously being ashamed of the way that these people living in paper mache houses would welcome us in and give us everything they had. It's like I'd get annoyed if someone knocks on my door, right? I'm watching TV here. This is my time. And just the generosity of these people who have nothing... Paul's doing the same thing here. You remember those Macedonians, those ones that have nothing, they're giving everything they have, and then more than that, and you guys, you fat cats, 
have stopped giving altogether. Every now and then I'll share with our church the fact that I kind of, I kind of uh, get an inside view on some churches because I'm, you know, obviously uh, have colleagues that run churches and sometimes we'll talk about money stuff because it's really just a big part of our job. I wish it wasn't, but it kind of is. And a couple of times I've shared with you that churches in similar demographics to us, with similar or smaller churches, have just, just, just like shockingly bigger giving totals. And every time I find this out, I wish I hadn't found it out, and I've shared it with you, not figures, but I've shared with you that general kind of truth a couple of times, and a couple of times, one or two of you have come to me and said that you've been offended by that. I think what you're experiencing is probably some of the shame that we might feel in this situation, some, some of the guilt that the Corinthians might have experienced, but the reason that I haven't repented of that and that I'll continue to do it is because it's actually a legitimate test of our love. Did you get that? Our giving, our generosity is a legitimate test of our love and of our salvation. And if you're put off by it, let me read to you verse 7 and 8. He says this, Since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in the grace or the gift of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. I want to to test the sincerity of your love. We can see from the outside, you Corinthians, you're famous in the Christian world. You guys are jacked up on spiritual gifts, right? That church was just like the most charismatic church in the world. They're all prophesying, speaking in tongues, doing evangelism, healing people. It's all just pumped with spiritual gifts. And so it looks great. And Paul says, you've got genuine earnestness in love. Your generosity is a test of that love. I want to test the sincerity of your love, the genuineness of your love. Is there any substance to your love? I want to test it by comparing your giving with the giving of the Macedonians. It's a legitimate test. So like Paul to the Corinthians, I want to say to us, I am so overwhelmed continually by the grace of God in our church. Like, particularly in this season now, the last couple of months, I've been so encouraged by our church, by the people of our church, by, by your faith in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, right? But these things are growing and growing and growing in our midst by the grace of God. But Paul says, and I want to say, Here's a legitimate test of whether that love is genuine. Third reason we might feel guilt. We might feel the shame that one experiences when one doesn't have very much to give. So what I've experienced when I talk to some people, especially the leaders of our church, about our church and our giving some of the pushback that comes back from comparing us with other churches is the the kind of alibi, if you like, 
for low giving in our church is that, you know, we just don't have much money in our church. There are people in our church who are refugees. There are people who are unemployed. We live in the west of Melbourne, right? That's, that's the poor part. Now, I don't buy that. I do know for sure that there are people in our church who I, I, would, be, I would be grieved if I saw them giving very much at all because I know that they don't have very much at all. I know that there are people in this church who are providentially prevented from being able to give very much. But that's nowhere near the majority of us. Nowhere near. So in that case, let me speak to those of you who are providentially prevented from giving very much. It might, there might be in you this sense of inadequacy, this sense of guilt or shame that you're unable to give very much. Compared to some of the people in our church who have a lot, you don't have very much. And so that shame can prevent you from giving at all. This would have been true for some of the people in Corinth. Yes, it was a wealthy, wealthy town, but the gospel breaks down barriers of economic and, and social and, and class segregation. And so you're going to find poor people in the Corinthian church and Paul wants to encourage them in giving. He points to the example of those poor Macedonians. Jesus praises the widow who puts in her last coin. And so it is with us. Those of you who do not have much to give, please be encouraged. Paul says in verse 12, for if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. He says it's all about willingness. That's what Jesus was praising in the widow. Not that her little penny would have done anything, but that she had that willingness. It was a heart issue. Giving is a heart issue. And so it's possible to drop 10 grand on our church this morning and for it to mean nothing to God. Nothing. Remember Jesus says, don't be like the hypocrites when they pray, they stand up in front of everyone, right? And they pray loudly in front of everyone. He says they have received their reward. What is the reward for dropping 10 grand on our church without any willingness? Feeling good about yourself, maybe? No eternal reward. Eternal reward, Jesus says, comes when we stir up treasures in heaven rather than treasures on earth. It comes when we're so invested in the kingdom that we willingly give of what God has already given to us. And so if you're here this morning, you don't have much. God isn't interested, really, in how many figures you contribute. He's interested in your willingness to give for the sake of the kingdom. So don't let guilt prevent you from giving. Remember, let me finish on this. This is, I love this. When it comes to guilt and its power to prevent us from being generous, remember where we started we started with Zacchaeus. 
if there was ever a candidate for someone to feel guilty when it comes to this issue of finances and giving, if there was ever a prime candidate, it's Zacchaeus, right? He sold his own people out. He's been extorting money from others. He's been lining his pockets. If there was any, ever any a legitimate candidate for guilt, I'm not even talking about unnecessary guilt, I mean legitimate guilt, condemnation. He should be feeling it. But what happens when Jesus comes, the Son of Man, seeking and saving the lost? What happens when salvation comes to that house? He is liberated not only from guilt, but from his worship, his idolatry, from the chains of materialism that have bound him to this point. And the same is on offer for us here this morning. To varying degrees, we will be chained to the love of money. To varying degrees, we will feel and experience guilt and shame on account of how we use our money. And what I'm offering you this morning, what the Lord Jesus is offering you here this morning is liberation. One of the most powerful forces to liberate us from the worship of money is the giving of money. It's an antidote. And all of it comes to us by grace. 